Dr. Carl Moore and I have a dialogue about proactive inclusivity on today's Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 102. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'm happy to be welcoming to the show today Dr. Carl Moore. He is an associate professor and director of the Research Academy for Integrated Learning at the University of D.C. Prior to his current role, he served as an adjunct assistant professor in the College of Education, as well as the director of the Teaching and Learning Center at Temple University. Carl earned a doctorate of education in urban education from Temple University and a master's of arts from the Ohio State University in higher education administrator. He's been teaching for over 12 years and has created and instructed a variety of courses in education at Temple, Cabrini College, and Arcadia University in both face-to-face and online formats. I'm super excited to be talking to him for lots of reasons, but he's a self-described social justice advocate and techie. What, how does it get any better than that? Carl's passions lie in the research and development of programs related to inclusion and technology in higher education. Carl, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction. I'm humbled. Every time I hear myself introduced in any capacity other than, hey, there, here's just this guy. So <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Well, the thing that we're going to talk about today, the broad theme is going to be proactive inclusivity, which was a subject that is not talked about very often, at least not on too deep of a level. Sometimes we, we do these broad brushes, but we don't really dig in. So today I'm just excited to get to have a real candid conversation where I just feel so comfortable talking to you and asking you questions that maybe I might feel hesitant. And so just thank you for your time today being on the show. Oh, yeah. And thank you for the opportunity. Definitely. Let's start right out with your identity. Tell me about your identity. Yeah. So while we're doing like my diversity and inclusion work, you know, we have our exercises where it's, I'm, um, you know, a, a heterosexual African-American male, uncle, scholar, educator, techie, you know, all these subgroups, athlete, see what else. Yeah. I think those are some of the, you know, in terms of my, um, you know, social identity groups and then some subgroups that I kind of would say that I'm a part of, but, um, you know, American. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are some aspects of my identity. Now, would you like me to go into a little more depth with those or, you know, that's kind of like, Hey, I can write those down on a paper for an activity, (laughs) but so what oh. depth would you like to Oh, I definitely I definitely want to talk a lot more about it. There's one that's missing that I think I saw on your bio about your choice of what you what you eat. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian or you know, as I nowadays I try to say I eat vegetarian because there's usually there may be the vegetarian police around. So if you happen to be eating fish or something, um, <laughs> you know, my 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 weakness is, you know, like a um you know, what do you call it? Like a, a chicken, you know, quesadilla or something like that every once in a while. 
And someone will say, hey, you're eating that. You're not supposed to. And I'm like, where did you come from, veggie police? So <laughs> I am a vegetarian, but I like to, <laughs> no boxes or labels. I like to eat vegetarian. But yes, you're correct. And yeah. and that I did miss that. I missed that as well. Which one of the things that you have listed seems maybe either to you or to people that you meet, maybe the most incongruent or the most surprising? Hmm, interesting. You know what's interesting about the vegetarian thing? I think that may be surprising. Like, if you know me for a little while, it makes sense because, you know, sometimes I'm called, uh, you know, or referred to as just jokingly by my friends. Oh, you're a hippie. You like, you're a tree hugger. You hug the earth. And why do you think it's important with all the work that you've done on diversity and inclusion? Why is it important for us to be aware of these various aspects of our identities? Yeah, I think the awareness is critical. One, I mean, there's so many reasons. I won't say them in any specific order, but there are so many layers to us and they all inform not only how people may perceive us at that moment, right? So uh, the lens that other individuals have towards you, but our lens to the world. So an external lens and then one folks looking towards you, but, you know, they impact our, whether it be internalized impressions that we may have with ourselves being a part of any, you know, group or socialized into any kind of way where we think this is how I have to be to be authentic within this group. Like, for example, me as a male, you know, this is what I have to do to be a, a authentic male. And it might not even be where anyone's like sitting down telling me that, but I may have seen it in Disney movies or something to, you know, other aspects that we have to really know. And I think, I guess I'll say for, for lack of being super long winded, that it's kind of like, you know, health class, or at least I learned in health class that the better self-esteem that you have, the more likely you are to um, be able to appreciate others and what they're going through in terms of like, you know, emotional wellness or what have you. So I think it connects to all of those, all those layers. And there's so much with that. One of the things that has come up, gosh, over many years, back all the way back in college, I took classes like black history and, and had Martin Luther King Jr. hanging on the, on my dorm room wall and the whole thing and really enjoyed studying about the civil rights movement. But one of the things that really seems to have been changing that I've known some students have mentioned being uncomfortable about is what do we refer to people of that ethnicity as? And I have always used African-American, but then have sometimes been told, no, we prefer black. I once um, referred to a man from France as an African-American. <laughs> so what, what, where is some of the <laughs> <laughs> background around um, what I would call African-Americans? Oh my gosh. You've, you've asked the right person that, that question. Um, please bring me back to center if I, you know, I'm off the axis a little bit here. So I would say that the direct answer is that when we're talking about, you know, a black person, we're referring to, you know, race, right? When we're talking about African, we're including like an ethnicity or, you know, uh, you know, a place of origin with that, right? So at different times in this country, you know, there's different cycles. Referring to ourselves as, well, at least for myself, right? Referring to myself as an African-American, that's what I classify myself as. That's saying that I come from, I re- I'm recognizing the diaspora and I come from a long lineage of um, African people and I have African roots or roots in Africa, right? So what's interesting about that is like the African and American. I'm not just American, I'm African American. But then I also see that there are arguments on the other side that says that when you hyphenate, you, you, I don't know if the word is dilute, but you actually disassociate um, yourself with American and if you... African-Americans want to be include, included so much. You, why do you have to hyphen it, et cetera? But when we're talking about a legacy of a people who has been, you know, 
in some ways systematically, you know, depending upon person's argument or historically marginalized or pushed to the margins, because, you know, whoever wins the war tells the story, right? Or whoever is in control, um, controls the narrative. Then you are, you know, faced with a situation where folks want to reclaim that identity in very prolific ways, right? You know, and say, hey, I'm African-American. So Mm -hmm. to recognize that and to try to counter some of that oppression. So then the black piece is just the skin color, right? And, you know, and that's social construction because some folks in certain parts of the globe may not refer to themselves as black or even white. It's just more of a, you know, newer kind of Western thing. And your differences may be more so ones of religious or uh, affiliation or, or group with that, you know, in terms of how it is otherwise. So it's funny because you mentioned your one colleague or what have you. You say, hey, African-American. So a person from the Caribbean, they may refer to themselves as black. And I don't speak for all Caribbeans. I just know in terms of friends that I've had. But some of my friends say, no, we're, you know, we may understand black and connect to Africa, but we do not associate ourselves with African-Americans because we're not. It's just kind of like a person of European descent or heritage in America not really associating themselves with someone from France. It's like, hey, we're both, you know, we have white skin and, you know, everything like that, but, or European. And we know you have European roots and we have European roots because we're in France, but we're not both of the same. So we have a different history and a history, a different historical context Mm -hmm. from which we see ourselves. So that kind of is some of the um, conversation around that. But like, I really want to circle back to the when you have marginalization of, of culture through history, you know, through colonialization and domination and history and things of that sort of just the way things, the natural order of the way things have worked out in a certain part of history that is told, it's really important for some Africans of the diaspora or, or folks who have that lineage, or at least from, from their skin tone, it seems as if they have it, that lineage, they would one say, oh, African-American is it. And that's really contentious. I don't know if there is ever a point in time where everyone's going to agree on that, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's so many layers to that piece there. One of the things that comes up a lot with my students is this idea, a false idea, but this idea that it is possible or maybe even ideal if we could achieve it, which I don't think we ever could, of being colorblind. And that's where you see a lot of, (laughs) oh, I'm not racist. I, you know, I'm colorblind and all of that. (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh because I don't, my, my biggest thing is no matter what my opinions and thoughts are, I never want them to be, and if we have to be, well, I guess I'll say I'm really cautious of this. I never want them to seem like, Hey, my thoughts are superior because I'm so relative and so open-minded that my open-mindedness makes me judge everyone who's not, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It gets into the same issue. But so I do apologize for laughing, but what I'll say is I'll give a metaphor or something. In some ways, it could be looked at as, oh, let's be colorblind. So then if you went into a garden and you saw all different flowers of a different color, of different colors, that doesn't have as much, in, in my opinion, as much beauty and as diff- many different elements as, you know, a society that, or a, a garden mm-hmm. that has different variation. The color piece isn't, in my opinion, the issue. And I think that we have to be colorblind in some ways. Some people feel like they have to be that because they don't know any other way to be. The issue is in what is done with seeing difference, right? If it's feared or if it uh, should be oppressed or what the narrative is behind that or the institutional factors, et cetera. So, I mean, I do understand it. I think that people in terms of a person's racial identity development and all, there's so many different models and things I could, you know, quote right now, but that there are stages in which a person can really, truly, honestly feel in that in such a way. But I do think that there's something to be said about 
honoring and respecting the difference. And it's a hard thing to juggle, right? How do you do that while not doing that? It's a, it's a hard thing to juggle sometimes for folks. One of the things that's been so helpful for me in attempting to, to do what little I can in this area is thinking of cultural competence as a continuum. Because if I just think of it right, as yeah. you either have it or you don't, I'm going to really, right. <laughs> I'm, first of all, it's going to be assuming that I have it. If that's the lens that I use in assessing other people, then of course I have it and you don't or, or what have you. But also to recognize yeah. that you, you sort of alluded to this in how you were sharing about that sort of idea of we could actually be colorblind as a path along the way to someone's development yeah. into yeah. becoming more culturally competent. What ways does being an African-American man mean you can contribute mm-hmm. things that I can't as a, as a Caucasian woman? And what ways does mm-hmm. it, does it maybe hold you back from sometimes you wish oh, you could influence yeah. in a certain way, but you just find that you're not able to. Because of I'm an African-American male, what I bring to the conversation when I walk into the room is already something of difference because of the perception that others have of me, right? So I may be confirming this debunking myths, you know, there's all, so many different layers. Um, there may be trust that's there. But of course, on the other side of the coin, there may be the you know, alternative to all of those aspects. And me being able to speak to a- any of the topics through my lens, right? My positionality, being someone who I, I feel as if um, I'm more so acculturated than assimilated, which in translation is I have a strong sense of ethnic identity, but also a strong sense of identity with the, the mainstream majority of being American as well, which gives me the um, entry into understanding some aspects of my Americanness, but then also my lens of saying, hey, this is from, at least from Carl's, you know, upbringing and experience as an African-American this is how I view this through all those layers. And I think that that's something that's pretty powerful. And it goes beyond, hey, let's just hire someone just because of their skin color. But if all things are equal, it sometimes brings in that other extra added layer that you may not have otherwise, because, you know, that's kind of like a frog can only describe to me what it feels like to or fish to swim. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, unless I'm a fish, I don't know that, you know, so. But on the alternate side of things, I think where it limits me or could limit me or 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 restrict me would be as it relates to there are certain preconceived notions that a person may have about me because of my positionality, whether it be male or even like being a, a, a seemingly younger male in mm-hmm. higher ed. Cause if I was an older male, I think it changes a little bit. They might think, Oh, who is he to teach me? Or it may kind of make me not as credible or have to try twice as hard or seem as if I could be gotten over on more and all those different layers just because of who I am. And I think that that's where on the other side of things, it may actually, you know, work, it could work a little against me. And then also my lens, the way, the lens in which I see things. Right. And, and I'm very aware of this being raised in, and you know, we didn't talk about class or, you know, anything like that specifically yet, but being raised as an African American male from a certain upbringing in a certain class group within America doesn't lend me um, as easy access to certain, you know, um, you know, ways of understanding the world or experiences. And there, 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 there are language, there's language and things that, you know, may have been learned later because of my education that, you know, just wasn't a part of my life. And it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, but some people equate those to intelligence, unfortunately. So those are all of the different ways in, in which I think it can impact how learners see me or, you know, uh, or, you know, in different settings. 
I want to talk a bit about proactive inclusivity, but let's start with just the second half of it. What do you consider inclusivity, and especially in the classroom? What I consider inclusivity is is that, and I have to, you know, it's interesting you say proactive inclusivity. Proactive inclusivity go hand in hand for me. Um, it's like I, they're they're linked. You know, I can't separate them. Inseparable. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of yeah because if to be inclusive, first it's a paradigm, right? It needs to be present. Uh, it's a paradigm from which a person operates to see from a capacities-based lens, right, what's around them, you know, the other or otherness, whether it relate any, as it relates to any um, aspect of social identity or what have you. Um, and it doesn't mean just race or, hey, we're talking about accessibility now. It's like, actually, that is where it becomes more important to have more prolific efforts and, um, you know, more, more powerful efforts and only because of the systematic oppression and factors. So for example, in any classroom, inclusivity or product of inclusivity, inclusivity is realizing that before you and I even walk to this classroom, that that classroom was built with four walls or how many ever walls, and it was built with chairs in certain areas. And by default, it's not going to meet the needs of the most diverse range of learners. It's a, it's a given. So does that, does that kind of make sense there? Mm-hmm. I want you to think back to all your years of teaching to a moment that you would like to celebrate where it's just a memory that you have where you really fostered inclusivity and, and had something worth reflecting on today and celebrating today. Tell me about that memory. I don't know if this really fits, but one time was when uh, in, in teaching youth cultures, uh, at Temple University as an undergraduate course that counts as a general education requirement. It satisfies one of their like, you know, race and diversity requirements. And I feel so great. I felt so great teaching that class at the end of class because these students walk in, especially at this day and age, I've taught this within the past five years. They walk in thinking that that colorblindness and sometimes, you know, hey, I listen to music. I listen to hip hop. Mm-hmm. I listen, I, I listen <laughs> to a little bit of this. So, at the uh, end of the course, through the curriculum and having them do, I had them do a cultural immersion experience where they actually would go into a, a, an area, you know, that they didn't, uh, that was most unfamiliar to them and kind of take inventory of stereotypes, internalized oppressions and some other aspects. And at the end of it, we were able to all come together and not see everyone's different, you know, project from that person's lens, but through the lens of the entire class. So it was, it was inclusivity of worldview and of thought. Mm-hmm. And that those moments were so powerful for me because when the students left realizing, like, I recognize that people are different in how they look but and what they are interested in, but I recognize that some people just think this way. They, they grew in their intellectual ability to not necessarily agree, but appreciate and perspective take. I mean, wow. So in promoting that, it was just so powerful for me. And so for me, in promoting inclusivity, I think that I think I promoted inclusivity of diversity of thought, which is something that we don't even, you know, it's not even spoken about as much, which is like an invisible diversity. Like people have these different lenses that they see the world from. I can hear you just reflecting on how positive that was, how good that must have felt that, that you could move everyone uh, along the continuum of. Yeah. It was amazing. This next one may not yeah. bring up the fondest of moments, but I'd love it if you'd be willing oh. to share <laughs> the opposite, a time when maybe it was due to a lack of proactiveness or maybe it just emerged sometime where you felt that inclusivity was harmed in some way in one of your classes that you, maybe today you take lessons from and, and try to do things different. 
Well, you know, and this actually connects, and this way I can like factor both of them in. I used to do this this experiment where I would sit in front of my class, and maybe other people do this. I don't know if I like borrowed it or not. Where I would sit in front of my class in a in a sweatsuit. Like I would sit in front of my class with like a sweatsuit and a hoodie on, and the first day of class I would stand up, you know, after like five minutes. But then when I got up in front of the class, say, hey, I'm your professor for today, people looked at me like, what? Because, you know, me with a hoodie on as a black male, I kind of seem as if um, I'm not supposed to be in, in front of the class given the messages that, you know, folks receive in terms of they wouldn't see me as like, and the, the, the um, moment, this was my first time doing it. And actually it was like confirming, but it was like, it, it, it hurts so good. Like to confirm <laughs> what my, my, my hypothesis about it. Yeah. Like someone said, get out of here. You're not our teacher. I'm like, wow, this is really where we still are, you know? And they, and they, and everyone started laughing. I laughed with them. There was, there was not the pain that you would think, you know, from such a story, but it was just, when you think about it, it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of still where we are. And although it's understood, I think that that's one of the very tangible um, memories that I have. This is the time in the show where we each are going to give recommendations. And I actually am going to do two that are related to what we talked about today. One is there was a Chronicle article that either came out today or I just heard of today. And it's the title of it is How the Teacher's Race Affects the Teaching of Race. And the show notes will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 102. And if anyone wants to read that article, I think it was a really wonderful conversation that happened between a, an Indian woman and a Caucasian man and them just talking about their experiences with race in the classroom. It's a very apropos for today's conversation. And then another one is yeah, definitely. in my business ethics class that I teach once a year, one of the things that we talk about is diversity. Specifically, it's a lot more in the area of human resources and in the business context. There's a great podcast episode that's part of the series called Startup. And Startup is the chronicling of the startup of a podcast company that was started by Alex Bloomberg. And in this episode, Alex brings in three different people of color that work for his predominantly white organization. And he talks to them about their experiences working there. And it is so fun. I mean, they're journalists, so there's this natural tendency toward openness. And he's a very disarming, yeah, he's a disarming man. So to hear him, he'll just ask really good questions and they seem very candid with him about their experience. And they really challenge him in some ways of how he needs to get better, especially as the company were to grow. One of the women really says, hey, if you still look like today in terms of the higher management in you know two years from now, if we have this many more employees, that's not going to be a good thing. And it's just, it's a neat conversation because it's not one of huge bitterness, but still a candor that is important to being just having a more inclusive workforce. So I like that a lot. And then my last recommendation has absolutely nothing to do with race or ethnicity, but I did want to mention it. I have talked about before on the show using a references manager called Zotero. And I heard about in WordPress that you can install an add-in. The add-in is what I'm recommending today. It's called ZotPress. And if you install ZotPress on your WordPress site, you're able to access your Zotero library and use citations from within your Zotero library, create a bibliography for a blog post you had written, so on and so forth. And I thought it was going to be way too hard 
to to install. I thought, oh, this might be beyond my capabilities. And it was actually quite easy. And I had it up and running and super excited to be able to utilize that on my blog posts in the future. How's that? Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so, Carl, what do you have that's, to recommend today? That's, that's, that's three. I, I have to give three now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you, you can. You're welcome, no, too. <laughs> it's, the floor is yours. I was thinking to myself, Bonnie, I'm like, I have to write these down. But, of course, I can, <laughs> I can get them from you afterwards. So there's so many things I can say. There's so many books. So we'll have a, a, I'll have an opportunity to link to some stuff on this. So I won't say any right now. You know, and then I'm like, darn it. What I will give is um, a suggestion of an activity and um, an app recommendation as well. But the, the activity I would say, and this is tied back to our conversation and inclusivity in the classroom. So I wanted to think of something to recommend that would really bring it home for everyone or that would really connect. For me, a lot of this ties into, and I don't want to sound too flower childish or whatever people may refer to it as, but I think it comes down to really an orientation to a collective of loving others and being open to others. But I think that that's sometimes limited by awareness of self and mindfulness and being able to be in the present and just really be de-stressed because there's a lot of a lot of that oppression and those aspects happen when barriers are put up because of our lives. So what I would recommend is an activity and it's just do 60 seconds a day when, when we wake up and it's a progressive body scanning. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll wake up, eyes closed, just kind of wiggle your toes, take inventory of every part of your body, every limb, even your organs. And that's pretty much it. Just being fully present in oneself. Now, there's many other mindfulness or contemplative, I guess I would say, contemplative practices that we can do to continue to grow our own personal and emotional wellness, because I think sometimes that's a missing ingredient when discussing aspects of inclusion, diversity, all that other stuff. It's, we have a bunch of hurt people trying to save or alleviate issues of hurt, but it's like we're still hurt. So that helps with that. And to that end, there is an app that I would recommend for those of you who are interested in the contemplative movement or anything of that sort, or it's called Insight Timer. But it's really cool. You can meditate with, uh, I'm sorry, not meditate, <laughs> meditate with folks from around the globe, and you can set an alarm for yourself every day that you're able to meditate at a certain time. I think it's been really helpful for me to be able to not only deal with some of the, you know, aspects of inclusion or barriers, but even create more inclusive measures myself as an instructor, just having my mind at ease and at peace. So those would be my two recommendations for today. Thank you so much for those. And we'll make sure and add any books that you want to include in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 102. And Carl, thank you so much for your openness to having conversations like this and for your contribution to today's episode. Thank you. Peace and blessings to you. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to, to share with you. So thanks again. Oh, to you as well, Carl. Thanks once again to Dr. Carl Moore for joining me for today's conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. A reminder is that if you haven't yet given the show a review on iTunes or whatever service it is you use to listen to the show, you're holding people back from being able to join the community. It would be great if you could do that. And that helps more people discover the show. And also, if you want to check out the show notes, make a comment for Carl or I, that's available at teachinginhighered.com slash 102. And lastly, if you aren't subscribed yet to the weekly email that comes out, that'll get you the show notes right into your email box, along with an article about teaching or productivity on most weeks, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for being a part of the teaching in higher ed community. And I'll see you next time.